All right, good morning once again, guys. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2? When we started 1 Samuel, we said that the main issue this book deals with is the issue of leadership. In fact, in both 1 and 2 Samuel, they chronicle for us the lives of three of Israel's most famous leaders, Samuel, Saul, and then King David. Now, Samuel, of course, served the nation as prophet, priest, and judge, Saul as his first king, and David, of course, as its second king. And since Paul tells us in Romans 15, verse 4, that the things in the Old Testament were written for our learning, one of the big things we learn from the history of Israel is that in the absence of godly leadership, a nation will suffer and decline, whereas in the presence of godly leadership, it will prosper and be strengthened. Now, up until this point, the focus of 1 Samuel has been on Elkanah and his family. Now it shifts to Eli, the high priest, and his family. And we're going to see how the Holy Spirit is contrasting the corrupt leadership of Eli and his sons who were priests. So the Holy Spirit is contrasting the corrupt priesthood with the godly leadership that he was raising up in the person of Samuel. For example, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, abhorred the offering of the Lord. But verse 18 says, Samuel ministered before the Lord. They hated serving God, except for what they got out of it. Samuel had a heart for God. The two brothers committed evil deeds at the tabernacle and invited God's judgment. Verse 26 tells us Samuel served at the tabernacle and grew in God's favor. Verse 26, the priestly line would end in Eli's family. But Samuel would be called by God to carry on a holy priesthood. Chapter 2, verse 34 through chapter 3, verse 1. Now, verse 17 tells us that because of the corruption of Eli's sons, who were supposed to be God's representatives, his ministers, because of their corruption, the people, it says, hated coming to the house of God to offer sacrifices, which is a form of worship. So today we would say they hated coming to church and worshiping God. And again, it's, it's still a problem in ministry today. Ministry, like any other profession that is supposed to serve others, whether we're talking about law enforcement, civil service, or even the medical profession, we see people in these professions that have good hearts and only want to serve others. And, of course, we see others that are attracted to these professions to benefit themselves. And the same is true with ministry. We see many people... They get into ministry who have good hearts. They love the Lord, just want to serve people, help people. But it also attracts people that only see the ministry as a way to benefit and to enrich themselves. These are corrupt, selfish ministers, quote-unquote, that look at the ministry as a way to make a buck and see people as nothing more than pawns to achieve those selfish objectives. Of course, the devil uses them, these corrupt pastors and preachers and so on, to make the rest of us look bad also. You know, there are many in our country that look at Christianity and see these corrupt people in ministry. They see the greed, the scandals, all the emphasis placed on money all the time, and it turns them off to church. There's a lot of people who do not go to church who might otherwise go to church, but because of what they see, the, the people in ministry representing the Lord, most of it on TV, they get turned off. They've, they've been turned off. Okay, I can't blame them, really. And, of course, the atheists and secularists, uh, use this to prove that Christianity is a joke, all right? Just loaded with crooks and phonies who are up on stage playing a part, looking like it's sincere men of God. 
when really, really all they are is religious hucksters and conmen. And certainly some of that's true because our passage indicates that. The problem is that atheists and secularists divide the world into two groups, the religious and the secular. And when it comes to the religious, they lump the good in with the bad and condemn all of us. I mean, whether you're talking about Christian con artists, Muslim terrorists, Satanists, Scientologists, okay, uh, anyone that believes in the spiritual, regardless of what spirituality they embrace, are lumped together and categorized and condemned as clueless idiots at best and evil nutjobs at worst. When in reality, guys, the world is divided into three groups, not two. Not just the religious and the secular, it's divided into the religious, the secular, and then the true people of God, isn't it? The true body of Christ. Those that look at religion and see the phonies masquerading as Christians and reject Jesus because of it, well, they're going to stand before God someday. And I can imagine the justification when they stand before God will go something like this. Well, God, the reason I didn't believe in you is because of all the phonies and hypocrites in the church. And what is God going to say to them? I didn't tell you to believe in the phonies and the hypocrites in the church. I told you to believe in my son. What does the phonies and hypocrites in the church have to do with Jesus? Jesus was no phony. He was no hypocrite. Why are you writing off Jesus because there are phonies and con artists in the church? Didn't Jesus himself tell us there would be the tares among the wheat? Didn't he warn us on numerous occasions there would be the false that the enemy would sow into the church in an effort to discredit all of us? See, don't fall into that trap. You know, when I talk to folks like this, I say, look, Jesus was no phony. Just because you got some, some con artist and religious huckster on TV, you know, putting all the emphasis on money, strutting around like he owns the joint in a $1,200 suit when all he is is nothing but a, a con artist, don't look at him and judge Jesus by him or the rest of us for that matter. It's just something to see what's going on today, you know? Now, from a human perspective, as we read this story, it looked as though Eli's sons were getting away with their wicked practices, like they were sinning with impunity. It may look that way for a while, guys, when we see some of these characters in Christian circles, although I have noticed something recently that God is bringing down some of these Christian celebrities who I don't believe are really servants of God. They're serving themselves. It's interesting to see how God is beginning to remove some of them. It has already begun to remove some of them. I mean, judgment begins at the house of God, right? And I think God's cleaning his house to some, to some degree. But these characters, Eli's sons, it looked like they were getting away with this stuff. Certainly Israel thought that they were wicked, corrupted, and getting away with things. And yet God was preparing their judgment, just like he is preparing the judgment of corrupt pastors and preachers today in the church. Listen to what Peter said in Second Peter 2, verses 1 to 3. He said, but there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you, talking about in the New Covenant or the church. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the Master, Jesus Christ, who bought them with his own blood. And this way they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. God's word will be slandered. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. Oh, well, we were warned. But God condemned them long ago. Listen, and their destruction will not be delayed. It's coming, okay? 
Just because God hasn't punished the wicked in the church yet doesn't mean he won't someday. And just because evil pastors and preachers and evangelists out there ripping people off and claiming to represent God but are really just lining their pockets, don't think that God doesn't know what's going on. Don't think they won't stand before him someday and be judged. Now, I'd like to divide this section into two main parts. The corruption of Eli's sons in ministry and then the preparation of Samuel for ministry. So the first one, the corruption of Eli's sons in ministry. And let's start out with the practice of Eli's sons, starting in verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you but raw. And if the man said to him, Well, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires, he would then answer him, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. We further read about the practices of Eli's sons in verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. All right, the number one reason there is so much corruption in ministry, you ready? Verse 12 tells us, the sons of Eli were corrupt. Why? They did not know the Lord. Okay, I mean... The reason these men were so wicked and corrupt was because they were unbelievers. Unbelievers. I mean, that, guys, is the number one reason for the vast majority of corruption among leaders in the church. The church has become infested with false teachers and preachers. Even though God warned us repeatedly in His Word, both Old and New Testament, to be on guard against them, uh, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 7, verse 15, He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now, if you study that passage, you will discover from verses really 15 to 20, he is going to be warning his disciples against false prophets. And the first word of the warning in verse 15 is the word beware. Beware. The Greek word translated beware means to pay attention to, to keep on the lookout for, to be on one's guard against. And Jesus is very clear as to those he is warning us to beware of. He says, beware of what? False prophets. Yeah, but we don't have prophets anymore, right? That was Old Testament stuff. Hey, look, a prophet is anyone who speaks on behalf of God. That's really what a prophet was. He was a mouthpiece or a spoken for God. Uh, in a very general sense, pastors, preachers, evangelists, small group teachers, Sunday school teachers, anybody who speaks on behalf of God, claims to speak on behalf of God, in the very broadest sense, is a prophet is a prophet. And false prophets are nothing new or unique to the church. They have been around from the beginning. Again, 2 Peter 2, verse 1, Peter warns us about them. They're going to be among you. Peter said, well, before Peter died, they were certainly among the people of God. He knew that. But false prophets have been around since the beginning. In fact, 
If you study the Old Testament, you'll realize that much of the ministry of God's true prophets in the Old Testament was taken up with confronting, correcting, and rebuking false prophets who were like a cancer in the land of Israel. Why don't you turn to Jeremiah? I'll show you a few of these, okay? Jeremiah prophesied at a time when false prophets were rampant. And you can read these entire passages at length to get an idea of what was going on. But in Jeremiah 14, verse 14, listen to what Jeremiah said. Now, he's a good guy. <laughs> he's a true prophet. And he is ministering with very few other good prophets. Most of the prophets in Israel were corrupt. In verse 14, he said, The Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. So you get the idea. These were men running around saying, thus says the Lord, hey, I've had a vision from God. I dreamed a dream from the Lord. But it was a worthless thing. It was, there was, God was not speaking through them. He had not spoken to them. They were just telling the people what the people wanted to hear to get in good with the people to make money. That's what it was. Of course, guys, there would be no false prophets if there wasn't, listen, if there wasn't a market for their lies. Turn to Isaiah 30. God is indicting his people for not only tolerating false prophets, but for actually encouraging their ministries. Isaiah 30, verse 9. God said, these people, talking about his own people, Israel, they are stubborn rebels who refuse to pay attention to the Lord's instructions. They tell the seers, stop seeing visions. These were the good seers, the good prophets. They tell the true prophets, don't tell us what is right. Tell us nice things. Tell us lies, all right? Forget all this gloom. I don't want to hear judgments coming. I don't want to hear repent and turn from my sin. Keep it positive. Tell me how I can get wealthy. Tell me how I can, you know, have my business prosper, you know? Tell me how I can have my best life now, kind of a thing. They said, get off the narrow path. That's what they're telling the true prophets. I don't want to hear about this narrow path stuff. T stop telling us about the Holy One of Israel. Can you believe that? We come to church. We don't really want to hear about God. We want to hear about us. Tell me how I can be blessed, right? Tell me how I can have all my felt needs met is the idea. And don't tell me this narrow way. I want a church that's broad and very tolerant, right? Even though Jesus said, look, the broad way is the way that leads to hell. Many go down that path. The false prophets are waving people down the broad way to hell like spiritual traffic cops. Don't go that route, all right? He said the narrow way is the only way that's going to get you to heaven. That's me, all right? But there are churches that don't want to hear Jesus is the only way. You know, they want to hear there's many roads that lead to heaven because you know what? We don't want to offend people. We don't want to get negative. Let's keep it positive here. That's when we get people in the door and make the money. we got to build a sanctuary up. Again, these false prophets wouldn't be around today if people didn't want to hear, or back then, if people didn't want to hear their lies. Turn to Jeremiah 5. If God's people wouldn't tolerate these characters, they wouldn't be around. They wouldn't have a ministry. Jeremiah 5, starting in verse 30. A horrible and shocking thing has happened in this land, God said. The prophets give false prophecies, and the priests rule with an iron hand. Worse yet, my people like it that way. But what will you do when the end comes? What's God saying here? He is saying, I'm sending you true prophets. They are telling you, as I have told them to tell you, that because of the way you're living, judgment is coming. 
Now, there's time to repent. There's time to change. But you need to listen to them right now. But you're not listening to them. Instead, you are persecuting the true prophets, and you're listening to the false prophets who are telling you everything's great. Don't listen to guys like Jeremiah. He's a, he's a negative Nelly. He's judgment, and Babylonians are coming, and oh, that's both. You're God's people. God would never judge you. And God is saying, you know what? You keep listening to the false prophets. What are you going to do when the judgment finally comes? I've warned you, but you don't want to hear it, is the idea. I mean, what are people in America going to do when judgment finally falls? Churchgoers now, who kept being fed messages that, you know, it's all about you being prosperous and God blessing you and so on and so forth. Not repent. Not get on your face right now and get your life right with God. You're in sin. No, that's too negative. You know, Paul the Apostle predicted that this attitude would continue in the church age and become more and more prevalent the closer we got to the Lord's return. Turn to 2 Timothy 4. You all know this, of course. 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 3. Paul said, for the time is coming when people, he's talking about people in the church now, will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching from God's word. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. The church has embraced myths, lies, in the name of God. I think one of the big reasons so many churches or so many in the church are being deceived and drawn into false doctrine is because there is so much emphasis today being placed on the mystical, on the mystical, such as experiences, visions, dreams, etc. Everyone wants to hear a, a, you know, a new vision. They want to they learn about a new experience. Uh, you know, they want to be made to feel excited all the time about new things and new experiences, new visions, and so on. And because of it, so many churches are catering to that, that very little emphasis is being placed on the biblical. Mystical, a lot of emphasis. Biblical, not so much. In the way of teaching sound doctrine. Doctrine's boring for a lot of people. I mean, I heard of one church who didn't feel that teaching uh, a Bible study in small groups was going to bring people in because people don't want to really hear the Bible. So they decided to uh, find, they found some curriculum that was put out by some group that used old sitcoms like the Andy of Mayberry show and Leave It the Beaver, and they would use those to teach doctrine from. Because I can't get people in the church just because, you know, God's word is being taught. We've got to do something kind of creative, you know. One church in the area taught a series on the Trinity based on the Invincibles, the Disney cartoon. This is called Doctrine for Dummies. And if you continue to dumb down the teaching to God's people, you're going to wind up with spiritually... All right. Uh, yeah. All right. I was going to say something, but I'm going to... You know, you get the idea, okay? I mean, you know, come on. How about you teach God's word in the, in the power of the Spirit? Okay? That's the pastor's responsibility. Make sure he's in the word. Make sure he's drawing close to the Lord so that the Spirit of God is filling his life, that he can be a channel then of the Spirit to use to bring forth the teaching of the Word through in a way that will cut to the heart, it will change lives, and so on. The problem is never the Word of God. It's living and powerful. The problem is the dumb preacher who's spending too much time, you know, uh, looking for creative ways and PowerPoint presentations. Not that I'm against that, but you spend all your time looking for a, a slide to use. You're not even studying the Word. That no wonder the church is so illiterate because... God's word is really not being taken It's not being taught faithfully. Too much emphasis on all the mystical. This was going on in Israel's day. You, you remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah 8? When they say to you, when the people say, this is God's people, 
Seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter. Eastern mysticism, occultism had come into the nation of Israel. And people were enamored with all these characters who, uh, you know, had uh, the mediums and the wizards and so on, and had these, these secret messages that were so profound and so on. God said, should not a people seek their God? What are you doing messing around with these people? Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? People in the Old Testament going to mediums to inquire of the dead to find out how to live. That's, that's ridiculous. You don't go to dead people to find out how to live your life. You go to a living God who will tell you how to, what to do to live your life. God rebukes me. He says, to the law and to the testimony. Get back to the word of God. That's what he's saying. If they, anybody, in the church or outside the church, if they do not speak according to this word, my word, God says, it is because there is no light in them. God says, my word is a light. And so Eli's wicked sons did not know the Lord. They weren't saved. And the four sins they're charged with in this passage, not that we have to spend any time on I'll just read them to you. They robbed the people, first of all, of their share of the peace offering, not being satisfied with just the breast and the thigh as God had prescribed. They demanded meat before the fat had been offered to God, thus shirking the law of God, which he said they were not to eat the fat. They wanted roasted meat instead of boiled, putting their own carnal appetites first. And if anyone protested, oh, we can't do it that way. God told us not to do it that way. They took it by force. And number four, they seduced and slept with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, according to Old Testament law, with the exception of the burnt offering, which was an offering given to God and burned up completely, all the other offerings uh, that were brought to God, peace offering and the others, the priest was allowed to take part of it for himself and his family. God had prescribed that in the law. There were certain parts of the animal sacrifice that after it was offered to God, uh, the priest could take those parts for himself and for his family to eat off of. That was okay. Uh, instead, Hophni and Phinehas took for themselves any cut they wanted. In other words, they were saying, look, we don't care what God has said. We're going to do what we want to do. We're going to take whatever cut of meat we want, including the fat which God had forbidden the priests from eating altogether. As one commentator said, the fat was thought to be the most luxurious, best part of the animal. So, of course, uh, it was to be given to God. The idea was that God always got the best. That was something he was trying to drive home to his people. Uh, the fat's the best, I get the best, and so I want the best of your day, your life, and so on. I, I need to be put first. The idea was that God should always get the best, and God should get his portion first. But in their pride, the sons of Eli took their portion before they burned the fat. They even took raw meat so that they could roast it, not have to eat boiled meat. Why did the sons of Eli want raw meat? Well, again, they wanted to prepare it the way they wanted. They didn't want to have boiled meat, I think, number one. Number two, I think that they wanted raw meat because raw meat was probably easier to sell. And they pocketed the money. Again, making merchandise of the people that had come to worship God. See, the same thing in the church today. And if all that wasn't enough to anger the Lord, it says in verse 22, they even slept with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle. Who were these gals? Well, they were probably women who just wanted to serve the Lord. They couldn't be priests. Okay, God had forbidden that. So what are they, they love the Lord. They want to serve the Lord. So what do they do? Well, they came to the tabernacle. And as we said, at this time it was in Shiloh. And it had some kind of a structure around it. Okay, the tabernacle was a tent. But it seems like they had built uh, an enclosure around it with apartments for the priests. 
and they had like a picnic area, for lack of a better term, okay, a large picnic area, because the idea was during these Levitical feasts, you would bring your offerings to God. They would be, some of the animal was burned up to the Lord, the rest was barbecue given to you and your family, and you would go over, you know, in the picnic table somewhere, and you would eat there before the Lord. The idea was God got part of the animal, my family's eating part of the animal, we're living off the same animal, basically, so I'm becoming one with the Lord. These were very important feasts to them, and it made them really feel like they were connected to the Lord. So you know how it is at picnic areas. People can be kind of sloppy, you know, and so after people would eat there, and it was probably a mess, these gals would probably go over and clean up to keep the serving the Lord that way. Maybe they even watched some of the young kids whose parents had brought them to the tabernacle so that the parents could just be freed up to worship God, focus on God. Let me have your kids. We'll take them over and get a little nursery going over here. We'll watch them so you can worship God like we do in church here. Or maybe they just want to be close to the Lord, you know, just want to be close to the, to the tabernacle, the house of God. Whatever the role of these women was, Hophni and Phinehas, instead of putting the spiritual well-being of these women first, before their own selfish desires, they seduced them and had sex with them right there in the priest's quarters, right connected to the tabernacle. Look, immorality in ministry, unfortunately, is not new or even uncommon. Not back then and not even today. Pastors and preachers that take advantage of women who trust them to be godly men. Um, I want to draw close to my pastor, my spiritual leader, because they're going to help me get close to God. And a lot of men have a good heart and will help the people in their churches to just do that very thing. But there are always going to be unscrupulous men who use their title, their position to make women think that they are godly men only to then lead them down a path of immorality. In fact, these two priests were so evil that verse 16 tells us that they did not hesitate to use the threat or even the act of violence to get what they wanted, saying to the people, give us what we want or we'll take it by force. Verse 17, therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Now you say to yourself, how did these men justify the things they did? And believe me when I tell you that everyone always justifies the wrong they do. You may not think so, but they always justify it some way in their mind. You say, well, how did these guys, these corrupt sons of Eli, how did these two guys justify what they were doing? Well, I think that comes through in verse 13. It says the priest's custom, hang on to that. The priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice. Let me stop there. The word translated custom is a Hebrew word that has the basic meaning of justice. In fact, it's the same root as the term judge. Judge. The problem was that the sons of Eli began to justify their actions based, listen, on what they thought was right, not on what God had said. We see this going on in many churches today where it doesn't matter what God says concerning, let's say, homosexuality. That it's forbidden. It's a sin. Many churches, pastors, and denominations today have decided that it isn't a sin. Why? Because they don't feel it's a sin in their heart. Okay? Hey, God said it's a sin, but you know what? In my heart, I really don't think it's a sin. I don't feel it's a sin. And because of it, they have made this whole deal where they have made a judgment on an issue based on what they feel is right and not upon what God has said. Again, Many denominations and pastors and churches today have determined that homosexuality and gay marriage are good. They're moral. Even though God has said in his word just the opposite. Why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians 6? You really ought to 
memorize these next two verses because you're going to need them when you talk to even Christians today. We're living in a very strange time. Even in the church, we have many people who are doing whatever seems right in their own eyes, not living according to what God has said. So today, I see many churches and pastors and so on saying, you know, gay marriage is fine. Gay marriage is good. God is a God of love. Doesn't he want people happy? If it makes people feel so right, could it be wrong? Okay. But what does God's word say? Let's put your feelings aside for a second. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. Paul said, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I have to, I have to qualify this because Paul said, and such were some of you, he goes on to say. These are not sins, they are the nature he's talking about. These aren't verbs or nouns, okay? All these, it's, it sounds like in the, in the NLT, like they're, like they're verbs, okay? People who are practicing these things. No, Paul is saying that people who practice these sins are demonstrating that's who they are by nature. They're not saved, they're not redeemed, okay? And he said, in such were some of you. He didn't say in such did some of you. Any Christian can fall into any sin at any time. But that doesn't mean we practice those sins. That doesn't mean we justify those sins and say they're okay, they're good, they're moral, okay? Paul said, and such were some of you. That was your nature when you practiced these things. But you've been justified, but you've been sanctified, but you've been, you know, the Holy Spirit has redeemed you now. You're not the same people anymore. But anyone who practices these things and tries to justify them, Paul is saying you're deceiving yourself you think God's going to accept you into the kingdom. But listen, guys, with regard to the issue of judges and justice, as we just said earlier, remember that 1 Samuel opens up during the period of the judges. The period of the judges. These men were chosen by God to lead the nation in fighting against their enemies first. We see that with guys like Samson, how he gave the Philistines fits. Okay. Although Samson was an immoral guy, wasn't he? And yet he was a judge. You'll read about him in the book of Judges. He was a judge, and he did fight against Israel's enemies. The problem with a lot of judges like Samson was that they themselves wanted to live immorally and unjustly. Part of the responsibility they had was to bring justice to Israel by upholding God's word, but they wanted to live immoral lives. They wanted to live unjustly. And so what they did was they tossed God's word, God's laws to the side, and began to do whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Look, whenever those in power decide that they're going to impose on the people they govern their own standard of right and wrong instead of following what God has said is right, what God has determined as a law, well, the result is tyranny. And we're seeing this in our own country. We have a president that is supposed to sign legislation into law. That's his job. Congress passes laws. The president signs them into law, and then the judiciary, the Supreme Court, upholds those laws. Three branches of government uh, separate from each other, right? So something like, we'll say, Obamacare. That was uh, passed by Congress a few years ago, signed into law by the president, who then decided he was only going to really enforce certain parts of it. 
He can't do that. The president does not have the authority to pick and choose what parts of a law he's going to enforce and not enforce. But we see that today. I've been reading the last few weeks about this mayor from Houston, Anise Parker. She's an open lesbian. She ran for office, no bones about it. She was, you know, proclaimed herself to be a, to be a lesbian. Well, she was elected, and she wanted to pass a law in the, in the city where these people who are gender-confused is the term, gender-confused individuals, guys who think they're women, can use the women's washroom. But you want your daughter in the women's washroom when some guy who thinks he's a woman comes in there? Well, of course, five of the pastors, and I'm sure there were others, but five in particular stood up and went out and they mobilized and they got thousands of, they got like, I don't know, 30, 40,000 signatures. They only needed 17 to put this on the ballot, a referendum, for the voters to shoot it down, okay? Well, she and her staff just threw out thousands of these, thousands of signatures. So there wasn't, wasn't enough to get on the ballot. Then she subpoenaed the sermons of these pastors to find out what they were saying about homosexuals. One of the most incredibly wicked overreaches I've ever heard of. I guess she thought she could do it with impunity, but she found out wrong. She's in hot water now. I mean, she, she may be, what do they do with a mayor, impeach them? She may be impeached. Because it's like, you know, you are not an emperor, madam. You're not a king. You don't just do what you want. We are a country of laws. Somebody says, one of the pastors, I have no problem giving her my sermons. In fact, I'll get, you want my sermons? Here's a Bible. Go ahead and read it. But, you know, look, since I've called this message the importance of godly leadership, let me just digress a couple minutes more and we'll close. If you've ever listened to our congressional leaders... Or even the media talk about our country. You hear the word democracy thrown around a lot, right? Okay. Uh, you hear about, our, you know, the media talks about our democracy. Our, we hear our president speak of our great democracy. When I hear that, I don't know if they're being ignorant or dishonest or both. What do I mean? America is not now, nor has it ever been a democracy. Most people don't know that. And if you doubt what I'm saying, all you have to do is look to the Pledge of Allegiance to prove that. You, you all know it, right? The Pledge of Allegiance it says, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the what? Democracy? For which it stands? The Republic. For which it stands. Uh, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Notice that America is a republic, not a democracy. You say, what's the difference? A democracy is government by the people where the majority rules. And you say, what's wrong with that? Our founding fathers hated democracies. Here's what's wrong with it. If 51% of the people in a democracy decide that any form of religion is evil and therefore a danger to the state, well, they can vote to outlaw the freedom of the other 49% who maybe want to practice their religion. They can outlaw that and make it illegal to practice religion. So you have the tyranny of the majority. 51% can technically override the 49%. And that goes for any issue. If the majority decides that certain forms of speech are hateful and therefore a harm to others, they can vote to outlaw that speech, and those that continue to practice it can be arrested and prosecuted for hate speech. 
You know what Winston Churchill thought about democracy? He said, and I quote, the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter, end quote. Have you ever watched any of the programs where they go out into the street and talk to average people or go on a college campus and ask, you know, okay, show a picture of Joe Biden. Who is this? I have no idea. <laughs> that might not be a bad thing. Uh, you know, who is the Speaker of the House? I have no idea. Who attacked us in World War II? China? Uh, you know, they don't know, okay? What are our three branches of government? Uh, boy, these are hard. I don't know you're going to try to stump me with these questions. Yeah. Wow. You don't want a democracy because people tend to get stupid, okay? When they enjoy freedom for so long, they tend not to cherish it, value it, and they take it for granted. Therefore, they don't understand it anymore. They don't understand what brought it about. They don't understand the forms of government that the world has, has had for centuries that have failed and how we have been a unique experiment in the world as far as the form of government we enjoy. Karl Marx said that democracy is the road to socialism. Why do he say that? Because, as Ben Franklin said, when people discover they can vote themselves money from the national treasury, that will herald the end of the republic. As soon as they figure out, I can vote myself, cradle to grave entitlements, the republic is over. Now we are a socialist society. However, guys, the biggest problem with democracy is that it only gives the illusion of freedom and government by the people and for the people. In his book, The Unseen Hand, A. Ralph Epperson says, and I quote, it is generally conceded that even a monarchy or a dictatorship is an oligarchy or a government run by a small ruling minority. Such is also the case with a democracy, for this form of government is traditionally controlled at the top by a small ruling oligarchy. The people in a democracy are conditioned to believe that they are indeed the decision-making power of the government, but in truth, there is almost always a small circle at the top making the decisions for the entirety, end quote. So true. You say, okay, well, what is a republic? A republic is a government based on the rule of law, on the rule of law, not the whims and the opinions and the selfish desires of the majority. It's based on the rule of law. One expert said this, and I quote, In a republican form of government, the power rests in a written constitution, wherein the powers of government are limited, so that the people retain the maximum amount of power themselves. In addition to limiting the power of government, care is also taken to limit the power of the people to restrict the rights of both the majority and the minority. What is the law upon which the American Republic rests? The U.S. Constitution is the framework that keeps government powers in check. The law is supreme, and the people can change America only by changing the laws. The Constitution provides the framework in which this change can occur. Want to make abortion legal? Change the law. The Constitution clearly spells out how it must be done, but the court cannot do it, end quote. Well, in a republic, a true republic, the courts cannot change laws. They can only uphold the laws. We're seeing that has changed over the years. But let me just say this. We have a president that's supposed to be a constitutional scholar. But instead of following the Constitution, he constantly bypasses Congress and governed by executive order. Now, I know every president has issued executive orders, but not to the magnitude and scope that this president has issued those executive orders. He said himself, I don't know how many times, he doesn't have the authority just by executive order to make illegals legal, to give amnesty. 
And all of a sudden, through executive order, he has done that very thing. But he isn't the only one thumping the Constitution. I think more than anything else, our country has become a critocracy. A critocracy is a government ruled by judges. Judgments in a critocracy are arrived at by the personal opinions of the judge. You know, somewhere along the way, judges in this country decided that they actually run the country. They actually run the country. They govern this country. And as such, our judges now are all-powerful. And because of it, the will of the people has become almost meaningless. I think of uh, California. The people of California twice mobilized to propose an amendment to the state constitution, not an easy thing to do, to ban gay marriage. Twice they did this. Twice they passed a law banning gay marriage. One gay judge in California struck it down. Nope, don't like it. Boom, gone. It's a cryptocracy. The Supreme Court is really ruling this country. All this has happened because we as a people have rejected God's laws. And we now find ourselves being governed by judges who tell us that certain forms of speech are hate crimes, killing the unborn is legal, and gay marriage is a right. In Job chapter 9, verse 24, we read, When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, listen, God blindfolds its judges. Isaiah 59, verses 14 and 15. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. You want to live a righteous life in this society we're living in? I hope you're trying it, but guess what? You're a target. You're evil, because you want to live righteously. God said, in a corrupt society... Where people have thrown out my loss, people call good evil and evil good. Those who want to stand up for good, you're evil. And those who want to stand up for evil, they're good. Of course, we define evil from God's word, right? So truth fails. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. How can there be justice without God's law? What is justice? It is upholding God's laws and making sure that they are applied to every person across the board fairly. You know, pastors don't get one set of standards and the person in the, in the congregation gets another set of standards. Yet with celebrity pastors in our country today, they get a pass on everything. Although God is bringing some down. God is beginning to bring some of these men down. I think God is sick and tired of what's going on in his church. Judgment begins at the house of God. God's cleaning his house. I, he is tired of the celebrityism. He has called us to be servants, not celebrities. But when a nation no longer honors and obeys God's laws, the result is the book of Judges. A nation where everyone begins to do whatever seems right in their own eyes. And when that happens, guys, God gives that nation over to its own wicked, rebellious laws. Okay? I'll give you one more scripture, we'll close. Ezekiel 20, starting in verse 24. It says, because they had not obeyed my laws. Now, God is speaking to his people. Because they had not obeyed my laws, but had rejected my decrees and desecrated my Sabbaths, and their eyes lusted after their father's idols, I also gave them over to statutes that were not good and laws they could not live by. It's a judgment from God. Americans are like, you know, all these laws are oppressive, all these regulations. It's strangling our country. It's because our country has turned away from God, and God's allowing it. God's allowing the downward spiral. 
And uh, what we need is national revival. That's what we need. I pray God is gracious. We deserve judgment. I pray that God is merciful to America and that he will pour out one last great revival and awakening in America that will bring millions into the kingdom. That's my prayer. If it doesn't happen, and America, like the Titanic, is just beyond hope it's going down, which that could very well be the case, then we need to save as many as we can before the whole thing goes under. And that's, of course, a work of God's Spirit. But it starts with the mindset and God's, the mind of God's people. Are we serious? Are we, what are we doing? You know, are we, are we you know, rearranging deck chairs on the, on the deck of the Titanic like a lot of people are doing? Are we trying to save people? That's our mission, okay? Now, we will continue. And I realize that the passage that we're dealing with deals primarily with spiritual corruption, corruption among uh, God's uh, priests and things. But remember, the context is the book of Judges. This takes place during the time of the book of Judges where judges ruled, not unlike we see in America. So there's a, there's, there's a lot of that relates to us. And we'll look at this more, God willing, next time. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We, we thank you, Lord, that you raised up America and she became, Lord, a, um, a light on a hill. And yet, Lord, that light is going out fast. We are turning our backs more and more on you and your word. Our churches are full many times, but pastors are delivering watered-down messages from weak pulpits designed to be men-pleasing and not God-honoring. And so, Father, your church is sick, and as the church goes, so goes the nation, because we're the, spiritual, we're the moral conscience of the nation. And, Father, we just pray you would pour your spirit out upon your church. Revive us, Lord. Revive us. And, Lord, begin to use us to bring this nation back to you. We just pray there's time. Father, thank you. We ask you to continue blessing these studies. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.